Uh, that's probably the dirty unknown secret in all consumer goods. If you go to any store before it gets onto the retail floor, it's in a bag. Every shirt is in a bag. And so, you know, I think that's a small piece, but it's a, it has tremendous impact to be able to move that kind of out of the supply chains. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm your host, Felix Tia. Sometimes your best business ideas come from unexpected moments. That's exactly what happened to Brian Pape back in 2006. While skiing and filming with a video camera, he lost control and slammed into a tree. The crash broke his femur in two. And for anyone that's been through this, you know it's an incredibly painful and dangerous injury. It was at that moment that Brian had an epiphany to leave behind a legacy he could be proud of. For Brian, it was bridging the gap between business and philanthropy to give back while doing business. Three years later, he founded Mirror. Mirror makes drinkware and reusable bottles, and every product sold helps fund a trackable project. To date, Mirror has given over $3 million, affecting the lives of over 100,000 people. Brian, welcome to Shopify Masters. Thanks for having me on. First of all, what an inspiring story. During this epiphany, you wanted to create a philanthropy-driven business. Why specifically in the drinkware and bottle business? It is kind of funny to think about bottles. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily thinking about bottles uh, against that tree, but it was really a catalytic moment for myself. Sitting against that tree, there were two things that came to mind. The first being, I was uh, dating my now wife. Uh, we've been dating for about three years. That moment that, you know, me almost dying kind of took me, the realization that I should, you know, maybe marry this incredible woman kind of highlights how much I was focused on just myself and not others. Fast forward, um, after we started Mirror, you know, we've been married uh, 15 years, three kids, we work together, it's, uh, we're having a blast in life. And um, the second thing I thought about was, again, very inward focused, what would people say about me at my funeral? You know, so if you can think about like, <laughs> selfishness, you're thinking about yourself when you're dying. And I realized at that moment, nobody would have gotten up at my funeral and said anything positive about me impacting the community or not leaving a legacy of, of impact. And, um, you know, I'd been fortunate enough to see my grandfather who had passed away in 96, have an incredible uh, life that he left. Um, and there was an, an amazing legacy from that man. And, um, you know, I quickly realized that, you know, I needed to change something in my life and I wanted to do something um, about it. And I was, you know, kind of an entrepreneur at the time. We saw this opportunity to really design and manufacture a, be a better looking water bottle. Um, and then from there it was, you know, we wanted to have every transaction have impact. And so, you know, we, we learned about the clean water crisis in 2009. You know, we're close to a billion people lacked access to clean water. And we thought, well, if we're selling water bottles, it makes sense to get back to clean water. And so that, that was kind of the moment of, uh, of us leaning into what has been so far a really fun ride and journey to, to help people around the world. Yeah. So you, you, you mentioned that you recognize that there's an opportunity to make better bottles. So describe to us your bottles. What does it feel like to pick up and hold a mere bottle that's different? Than any other bottle that you might find off the shelf. Yeah, totally. So that you say off the shelf, and that was what a lot of bottles were. Is you know, in the world of sourcing, you know, a lot of people will just go to the lowest common denominator, meaning they'll go to a supplier and say, "Hey, can I see your catalog of things that are already made?" And they just slap a logo on it and call it a day. So for us, you know, you pick up a bottle and it fits really nicely in your hand. So we we call it human centered design um, at Mirror. And so for us, it's you know, we really think through. How do you carry something? How does it feel in the hand? So we spend an extraordinary amount of time thinking about just actual use. You know, what is the average, uh, you know, circumference or diameter of a cup holder in a car? Um, if you're if you're commuting, 
how, you know, the size of fingers and hands, how do we make lids so that, you know, most people can hold it comfortably. And then when you drink from it, what is that experience? And it sounds, it sounds funny to just talk about like a drinking experience, but we spend a lot of time about how does the mouth feel? What is the opening? What is the size of the opening? Um, and we think they're really gorgeous. It's kind of this Scandinavian, Japanese, really clean design um, that's I've always been drawn to. And so that's it's definitely heavily influenced um, into really all of our products these days. Yeah. So it sounds like this process of designing the, the perfect bottle for all of these use cases for for fitting into a, a cup holder is not a straightforward process. So tell us about that initial uh, process to create the first prototype or first iteration of your products. Yeah, this, you know, this is 2009 is when I started working on the first bottle. And, you know, it's kind of like pre three, I mean, 3D printing is happening, but not at the level it is now, you know, we have 3D printers in our office, and we can spin up prototypes, you know, in, in, in hours. Um, but back then, it was, you know, a lot of renderings, a lot of just looking at it visually, working with an industrial designer, and then ultimately, you know, tooling up. And I think that was really a fun journey for, for at least for myself of like working with a supplier and saying, okay, how, you know, what can we do? And, you know, I'd been in the, in the hand warmer production where there's not much CAD design, there's no industrial design, you're, you're, you're literally filling dirt into a bag. And so this was, was quite the experience to like work with a factory. And when you start to learn about injection molding and, and hydroforming, it's literally blue sky. It's like, you know, I, I think I asked this really naive question of like, oh, hey, can we do a lid like this? And they were like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You just have to give us the design files. Um, and so that really kind of opened my mind to the capability of designing. And, and that process, I'd say, is really about stripping away. You know, there's a lot of things on the market, a lot of bottles where it's just additive, where there's all these bells and whistles and things. You can put your car keys in it and it tracks hydration. And, you know, there's LED lights. And we just take away as much as we can to make uh, to make a really, really elegant experience for a drinking bottle. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things there around like injection molding, especially 15 years ago when you were working on this for the first time, it's it was probably way more expensive than it is today. Do you remember how much of an investment, like how risky it was for you to, to jump in and, and try to create a bottle like this? I remember the first, we had three bottle sizes. We had kind of a 27 ounce, a 20 ounce and a 14 ounce. And the, the tooling, I, re I remember the tooling for everything plus the lids was like $20,000 that was the moment of truth of like, okay, we're, we're doing this, we're committing to making this bottle, it better be right. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, I had, I had been over to the, to our suppliers. And so there was a, a bit of trust built, but you know, you wire the money and 60 days later, you get your first sample and you know, you get to open the package and feel it for the in the form for the first time. And it's, it's, it's quite the experience, I, I, I will say. And I remember specifically, my wife and I we were headed up to Whistler during Thanksgiving um, in 2009, uh, with some friends. And we were we were late to go up there because we were waiting for UPS to deliver the package <laughs> and it finally delivered. So we jump in the car. My wife's driving. And I, 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 I could I could point exactly where I was on 405 outside of Seattle on the way up to Whistler, opening the box and looking at the product uh, and just. I mean, just admiration. I was like, this is this is so cool. <laughs> so the other part of your business it was around charities and grants that you're giving. And with your product to project model, you like to give to organizations where there's an intersection between people and environment. You at first we're talking about water based charities made sense. What are other kind of examples of organizations that you worked with since? Yeah. So, we, you know, like you said, we're, we're really centered around uh, grant making that that impacts people and the environment. And so examples of that are, you know, we've done some grants up in the Skagit Valley, which is north of Seattle. Uh, there's a there's a bunch of agriculture up there as well. And so there's a farm incubator up there that we've helped fund. We actually we actually helped them um, fund a well for them, for, not for drinking water, but for, you know, watering crops um, and helping these farmers who are trying to start their own farms, um, minorities who are trying to learn how to get in, into owning their own land uh, and developing their own business 
businesses. So we're really passionate about helping entrepreneurs, uh, whether that's via nonprofits or, or for-profit companies. Uh, but most of our grants, I'd say, are around clean water. Um, a lot of them have been around whether it's carbon sequestration, whether it's planting trees. Uh, we've also funded a lot of mobility um, issues. So with World Bicycle Relief, helping get kids onto bikes in East Africa to get to and from school, uh, even locally in Seattle and, and Boise. Uh, Boise Bicycle Project is an incredible nonprofit getting local uh, local folks onto bicycles, you know, who, who may not be able to afford them. Uh, they can come in and, and work at the co-op and fix up bikes, repair bikes, get credit to then, you know, essentially purchase with sweat equity a bike to help them either get to work or get to school. They're things that we're certainly passionate about. And we've seen tremendous impact of mobility through bicycles. And these are projects that need to be trackable. What makes a project trackable? How do you make sure that it is trackable? Yeah. So all of, we're, we're very transparent about all of the giving projects that we do. So I think, you know, from, from 2011, our first project, um, you know, my wife and I, Rebecca, we went over to Liberia, Africa to work um, more to observe uh, our partners on the ground in Liberia who were doing some clean water projects that we had funded. And, you know, we had this incredible trip, took a lot of photos, came back, showed some of our friends and, and, and my buddy Patrick, I have to credit this to him. He said, wait, wait, so the bottle that I bought helped fund this water project in Liberia. And that's what a huge light bulb went off that, you know, nobody at the time was really connecting the dots between, you know, a for-profit company doing good and the grant making that was happening kind of on the back end. Um, and so really from, from almost day one, um, on the transparency side, you know, we've been granting since we started, um, that was baked into the model. And then as far as codes, you know, we have a give code. Um, it's really an invitation to the model of generosity. So when you register a give code, you're exposed to all the grant making projects that we've done since day one. And so you can discover what we've done in Honduras uh, with great partners there as far as building toilets and clean water systems uh, to helping purchase a coffee washing station in Rwanda. So you can it's really an invitation to explore all the projects that we've done since day one. And you said that the moment that you open up the packaging to get that first sample was a, a game changer for your your business. What about that first time you gave the first grant? What was that feeling like? Yeah, it was it was a bit surreal. You know, it was it, there is this moment of like, you know, we, we we granted to Charity Water. I think Charity Water is our first nonprofit partner that we, we granted money to. Um, and it was interesting because we we've always granted on revenue versus profitability, because, you know, if we had if we had made claims that we were giving, you know, a certain percentage of profit, we weren't profitable for five years. Uh, so we've always been granting on revenue. So even though we weren't profitable, we were still writing checks to nonprofit partners um, around the world, which which is a bit unique. And I'd say, you know, the first five years, it felt a little like maybe self-aggrandizing of like, oh, we're, we, are we really doing good? Like, could I have stayed in corporate America and just like, you know, made some money and then just like write it, written checks, you know, to nonprofits that we cared about. But I think after five years, you know, and then starting to build and build and build and kind of like working on this marathon, you know, now to be able to look back and say, wow, we've granted over three million dollars. It feels certainly like we've created something that's beyond, uh, you know, anything Beck and I could have done individually, which is pretty exciting. Hold that thought. We'll be right back after this quick word from Shopify. <laughs> the first cup of coffee, it was awful. Meet Rod Johnson, co-founder of Black & Bold, a premium specialty coffee and tea company powered by Shopify. The journey of Black & Bold started with us opening our online Shopify store while we were burning beans in my business partner's garage. Shopify allows us to stay true to our mission by having an easily customizable and responsive site that make it very easy for novices to try their hand in becoming entrepreneurs. Get a free 14-day trial at Shopify.com slash podcast. 
I'm talking with Brian Pape, founder of Mir. It's a premium stainless steel drinkware company. And each year, Brian donates a portion of its revenue to sustainability projects. Now, looking at your latest impact report from 2021, you have decided to broaden your definition of impact. What was it before and what did you learn about what it was before that made you change it to what it is now? Yeah, that's it's a great question. You know, from day one, like I said, we've always been granting to nonprofits. Um, that's a huge piece of our business. But you know, as we look at impact holistically, you know, we've really thought about, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of buzzwords out there: responsibility, sustainability, um, circular. You know, and, and I think sustainability is probably the biggest. Um, I don't know if it's a fallacy, but the the idea that like you could be sustainable is is somewhat true and untrue. Meaning, there's a responsible way to ship something, right? If you if you max out a 40 foot container per cubic foot, that's more responsible than putting one box in there and shipping it across the ocean, right? So there's there's this idea that we have an impact through our supply chain, we have an impact on our people, and we have an impact on our stakeholders. And so we've broadened our definition of impact to what are we doing for not only the final recipients from, you know, generating revenue and choosing a grant, but then what are we what is our impact on our own people? You know, how are we supporting them from, you know, benefits, whether it's 401k, bonuses, profit sharing, um, all the way to unlimited PTO, like those sort of things really matter. Uh, but also on the supply chain side, like, are we who we say we are? And are we, um, you know, ethically sourcing? And I think we have one probably one of the best supply chains, I'd say, uh, in, in the stainless business. And that's that's due to a lot of a lot of hard work and a lot of verification and a lot of um, you know working with third parties who are going in and auditing and making sure you know that we're everything's above board um, that's certified everyone's getting paid paid a fair and livable wage um, in the supply chain. So impact for us is is, is more broad. Um, it also includes products. So how is a product made? Is it made with recycled material? Is it made with post consumer recycled plastic? Is it made with recycled stainless? Um, are we you know we've reduced poly bags. Um, all virgin plastic poly bags. Some some of the material finishes have to have uh, a bag around it, but they're biodegradable. Um, but most of the bags uh, have been eliminated from our supply chain. Meaning, when you open up these beautiful boxes inside, we've been able to kind of design cardboard to be able to hold the bottle so it doesn't get scratched, um, doesn't get damaged in shipment, um, but effectively eliminated millions and millions of, of single-use uh, poly bags, which. You know, that's probably the dirty, the dirty unknown secret in all consumer goods. If you go to any store before it gets onto the retail floor, you know, it's in a bag. Every shirt is in a bag for the most part. And so, you know, I think that's a small piece, but it's a, it has tremendous impact to be able to move that kind of out of the supply chain. So we, so like I said, we, we, we look at impact at a very broad um, level now, as opposed to just grant making to nonprofits. Yeah, speaking of that, you have a developing and changing view of, of philanthropy, and you want to move from what's called a power-based philanthropy model to a relationship-based. What's what are the two? What's the difference between the two? The old model, um, and you know, a lot of credit is due to Mackenzie Bezos um, and some others, even Melinda Gates. Um, you know, there's there's certainly others who are in the space that are doing this. But you know, this idea in the past was um, when you write a grant to a nonprofit there's been this notion that like you, you, you grant, but you say you can only use these funds for actual work in the field. You can use it for anything except for admin and salaries. So it's very prescriptive and it's very, um, taxing isn't necessarily the right word, but it's, um, it, it's kind of a burden on the nonprofit to say like, you can use it for this, but not that. And they're meanwhile trying to like write all these grant applications to like fund 
payroll, but then to fund like the work in the field. And so if, if you flip it and you think about like, imagine, you know, private equity or VC or, or just investors going into a, a, not, a you know, a for-profit business and saying, Hey, I'm going to invest, but you can only spend my investment on marketing or you can only invest, you know, you can only spend this investment on an office, you know, it would become very disjointed for the entrepreneur. And so this power-based philanthropy model is, is, is the prescriptive model of, and then also I need in, in a return for this money, I need reports on how many people it's impacted and, and exactly where it's done and, you know, all these things. Well, the, the mindset is shifting to more of relationship based. So, you know, spend time, certainly spend time getting to know the nonprofit. You know, do they have proper checks and balances? What is their, uh, you know, what is their, what do the financials look like? How are they, how do they lead? How do they hire? Really kind of getting under the hood of the nonprofit um, and then building, building that relationship over the long haul. So we, we have some evergreen nonprofits is what we call them, where we're granting and we say, hey, we're not just going to do a spot grant. We're going to, we're going to commit to you over three years. And we're going to donate, say, a quarter million dollars every single year. So then they can actually plan, you know, over the course of three years versus just kind of month in, month out going, oh, my gosh, do we get money from this for-profit company or this for-profit company? Um, so it kind of smooths out their donation cycle um, or their development plans. So it's it's really beneficial to the nonprofit. And the reality is, like, they know their business better than we do, right? So why, why would we come in and say, hey, here's a quarter million dollars, but you can only spend it on doing this small thing? Like, that's, that's kind of unfair to the nonprofit, I think. And if you're really going to invest in change, build the relationship, give them the money and get out of the way. And the nonprofit so far, the feedback that we've received has been astounding. They've said, you know, this mirror is certainly leading the way. Most people don't think about it this way. They want prescriptive reports. They want to only fund XYZ of the organization. You can fund this program, but not that program. And so, again, we're trying to just build great relationships with incredible nonprofits that, again, are in that intersection of people and environment, grant them the money, get out of the way. Yeah, you're starting to take a different approach than what you might typically hear. And one other area that you've done this is with sourcing materials. You specifically use the Freedom of Information Act to source materials. And when I think about the Freedom of Information Act, I think about news organizations using it. But you use it for your business. Tell us how you did that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think uh, when entrepreneurs are starting, they're like, how did you find the factories or, you know, how did you find the thing? And, and um you know, I, I don't know exactly, I can't remember where I learned this, but it, it might've been from Rick who started Little Hotties Hand Warmers, uh, one of my business mentors. And essentially because of the Freedom of Information Act, all import data is, is, is access to the public domain. Um, you might have to pay to get really detailed information because it's essentially it's kind of nebulous on the government websites, but there's companies that kind of filter it and make it searchable. So anyway, in 2009, when I wanted to start a drinkware company, I, I basically researched all the names of the companies of my competitors. Some companies, uh, you know, they, they hide their name. So it could be Dave's Bottle Company. But the reality is, you know, Dave's Bottle Company might be run by randomcompanyllc.com. So you typically find the actual company name by searching who owns their trademark, um, who owns the domain, you know, so, you know, things like that, you can get to the bottom of, of who the actual company is. And then from there, you can essentially research uh, import data. And, and sometimes it's hidden through um, a trading company. But for the most part, most of the companies just say the supplier right on the bill of lading. So the bill of lading is just a, a document that says where the product come from, how much is on there. Um, so, you know, some people use it to track their competitors to see how many containers they're importing, what kind of product they're importing, where they're importing it from. So I took a Venn 
diagram of three of my what I thought were the top competitors that I could be competing against that were REI. They all had a similar uh, factory and booked a ticket over to China, met with the factory and, and started and it was kind of off to the races. Is this something that takes a long time? Like how quickly were you able to get this information? I mean, it's almost instant. You know, you can get onto like Import Genius or some of these other websites and see it very quickly. Um, you know, and now it's moving um, and progressing to where it's on people's websites. You know, Patagonia has kind of led that way of the Footprint Chronicles. Everlane does that. You know, we're, we're about to expose the in- entire supply chain for us um, all the way down to the ship level because um, it's, you know, I think it's I think consumers are demanding it. They want to know where stuff's made. There used to be this mindset of like, oh, if people if people know where you're making it, that could be bad because they could either leverage your hard work in the factories. But the reality is we want all workers to, to be paid fairly. So we want better factories out there. And so if, if a, an entrepreneur wants to piggyback off a supplier that we've helped build a relationship with, you know, we're, we're fine with that. Um, the reality is it comes down to brand. Um, and that's something that we spend a tremendous amount of time on. I'm talking with Brian Pape, founder of Mir. It's a premium stainless steel drinkware company. And each year, Brian donates a portion of its revenue to sustainability projects. So the entrepreneurial spirit is definitely in your blood. Your grandfather found a business after World War II that's still running today. You owned a media company before this and you sold it before Mir. How did these experiences growing up help you with Mir? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. Looking back on, you know, entrepreneurialism, I guess, um, it's interesting because it's kind of popular now. It's trending. I think with the rise of Instagram, there's, you know, there's people who are, um, maybe they're entrepreneurs, maybe they're not, but it's, it's certainly, I think it's now somewhat cool to be an entrepreneur. I think back in 2009, it was kind of it was kind of still a weird thing to do. And, and social entrepreneurs were, was definitely not a thing. It was, you know, Blake from Tom's was kind of like one of the early ones. And that was 2006, 2007. So in 2009, there weren't a lot of us um, with this idea that like business could help people. They were like, that's no, 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 that's what nonprofits do. Um, but I think looking back, you know, whether it's in my blood or just observing people around me, you know, I was the kid in fifth grade who somehow figured out how to build, you know, a little origami paper cranes. And, uh, you know, this is pre-internet, so no one else at my school in Boise, Idaho knew how to do this. And so I, I, you know, I learned about supply and demand and, and, uh, scarcity and I'd make paper cranes and hustle kids lunch money for them and, you know, get them to pay me 50 cents for a, a, you know, a paper crane and then make a different color the next day and sell it for more, you know, like these sort of things are just things that I I naturally kind of gravitated to. Um, and I picked up our family's video camera in junior high and, and started filming for fun, just making goofy videos and whatnot. And I think my cousin was getting married and she needed someone to film it. So I, I think she paid me 200 bucks to film her wedding. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know how many lawns I'd have to mow in order to get $200. Um, so that, that kind of, that kind of sparked a lot of entrepreneurialism for me, I think of just this idea that, you know, I could find a way to leverage my time in a, in a unique way. Um, and so that's, that's kind of always been there. And I, and I love start, you know, I love starting things. I've really become, uh, I've really fallen in love with with not just starting but building. You know, I, I would I would consider myself not a serial entrepreneur. Um, I have very little interest in starting another company. Um, I like new ideas, but I like it in the context of of what we've been able to create at Mir, and and certainly I'm enjoying kind of the building, the scaling of of building a team, building culture, building trust amongst our team, building trust amongst our customers. Because I'll never forget the first five years of Mir was was excruciatingly painful because nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows what you're up to, and you're just constantly having to explain yourself. I mean, we we still do. You know, we're not this like you know mega corp. Um, so it's it's certainly we explain it, but it's a little bit a little bit more of a household name in, in certain categories. Yeah, I think that's an important point about how the first, in your case, five years there was a struggle. No one, it wasn't Greece. It wasn't easy journey. What kept you going? Like what allowed you to? 
come to the office every single day and keep on going at it, even though the progress was slow at first? It's a good question. I think that's, you know, that's probably credit to observing my grandfather and my family um, grow a family business of, of seeing them, you know, slowly over 80 years build this incredible business and to see what they were able to accomplish, I think was really in the back of my mind going, okay, you know, it's, you're not going to get, uh, you know, first of all, for me, it's not about getting rich. It's about having impact in the world. And I think that's what's, what's interesting is I think a lot of entrepreneurs, maybe they get into it for the money, but once you get into it and you have the impact of a customer thanking you for the incredible product they've made or a nonprofit thanking you for the donation that was made possible. I mean, that stuff is what's enriching in your life, you know, or, or mentoring or coaching employees um, who, you know, whether they choose to stay around or even leave on great terms, like that's what's rewarding. And so um, I think in the back of my mind, it was always about, you know, this paced growth um, mentality of like, hey, it's going to take some time. Um, and all, but also I, I kind we kind of joke, my wife and I joke that I think I'm fairly unemployable, meaning, you know, if I had to go get a job, I don't even really know what I would do because it's, um, you know, I don't have like one specific skill. I think just that idea of waking up and knowing that what I'm doing every single day matters. Um, so I think that was a huge piece of, of, you know, when it's hard and the going's hard and you're not profitable, you know, this first five years not being profitable but knowing that you're still having impact um, on people's lives and you get perspective, right? When you travel around the world, you know, we were in Myanmar and I think 2015 and you're, you're meeting people whose entire families were wiped out by a tsunami, you know? And so for them, they're grateful to wake up and to have, you know, clean water and food, you know? So like that perspective, I think helps when you're, you know, you can kind of go, what was me? I'm, you know, the business is hard, it's struggling, but you know, Hey, there's so many things we have to be thankful for. Lots of people want to give back and become social entrepreneurs, but are there any challenges that are specific to running a business that has a philanthropic component? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, you know, there, there's there's a lot of pitfalls. Um, you know, if I, if I had to think about it, um, uh, some of the things that maybe aren't known, I'd say, you know, when, you know, a lot of people's hearts are in the right place, which is great. Um, I think the other piece is that you really have to have it together, meaning as soon as you start to take a stance, especially on a consumer product, good product or consumer product company, when you're externally facing and you're out in the world and you're pushing stuff out into the world, whether it's content, product, hang tags, you're going to get stuff wrong and they're going to tell you you're wrong. Um, so it's it's listening. Um, you know, there's there's some stuff in the past where you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if that was like the best way we could have painted, you know, our, our nonprofit grant work, um, you know, whether it's photos or, or whatever it may be. And so, you know, it's all it's all um, kind of being willing to be open and, and listen to the other the other folks out there who may be pushing back on the concept. Um, but I think being in the right place, knowing why you're doing it and having some good data points behind you as to why you're doing it, but also being like, Hey, you know, that's, that's interesting. You know, we've had people, I'll give you an example. We, this is less on the nonprofit side, but we had a, a woman who emailed us and she said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a customer. I'm black. This is probably five years ago. And she said, I, I, I love mirror. I love the product. I love the mission, but I got to tell you, like, I don't see a lot of people like me in your advertising or your marketing efforts. Okay. That's interesting. Let's, let's note that let's, let's solve that and let's figure that out. And, you know, so we kind of thought, okay, well, what's, what photos do we take? And we're like, well, we don't have much money. So we kind of just take photos of ourselves, you know, and we're like, and our friends, okay, well, we're in Seattle, not super diverse. Let's make sure that we're hiring people and, and photographers from all over the world. Um, because the reality is our products are used by so many people. We're, we're sold in 62 countries. So it's really a matter of a reflection of let's just take photos of our actual customers or people that interact with the product um, from around the world that, that is beautiful, um, you know, kind of diverse 
piece um, of, of the puzzle. And so I think, you know, that's an example where it's, you know, you don't really expect it. You listen, you thank them for the, for the feedback. I mean, what a brave thing to do. And we're certainly grateful for that feedback. So your products are sold in 62 countries, over 3 million in grants. Where do you want to see Mir go next? Yeah, I think, you know, for us, we're always going to be committed to this idea of designing really beautiful products um, and, and being a generous company. You know, I think in certainly 10 years, 20 years from now, I think I, my hope is that people really look to Mir and going, wow, you know, Mir was really kind of next level on what it means to be a generous company. Um, my buddy Propaganda, who's a hip hop artist, you know, he talks about the possibility and, and that's, it's just kind of his broad concept of, you know, imagine a better future and what is the possibility of business. And so I think for us, we're trying to imagine a, a new possibility for business. You know, I think capitalism in, in some circumstances has rightfully gotten a bad rap. Um, but I do think that the power of the marketplace, the power of trade uh, is so powerful that if we imagine a new possibility of what can we be generous with? Can we be more generous with our time? Can we be more generous to our stakeholders and our supply chain and our employees? I think there's a really beautiful future ahead. And I, and I hope Mir is, is really at the center and, and pushing kind of the bounds of, of what a business can and should do um, for the world. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Brian Pape, founder of Mir, premium stainless steel vessels for coffee, beer, wine and food and donates revenue to organizations with sustainability in mind. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's all the time we have this week. Come hang out with us next time on Shopify Masters. Again, I'm Felix Tia. Take care.